topic that we're entering into tonight, we uh, wrapped up a series, uh, video series from Way of the Master on evangelism and giving us a good little model to follow. We'll talk a little bit about that um, by way of introduction and critique and review and reflection. Um, but also because of our task in apologetics, which really has to do with loving Christ. We love Christ and we do his will, not just here in the church, not just in our private devotions and home and all that. We also do his will and do apologetics and evangelism his way. We talk to unbelievers, okay? So that's going to be the theme of apologetics we want to get through. I'm going to give you, I'm going to walk through the schedule, not because you can't look up dates on the website on your own. Uh, you can do that, but I want to walk through the schedule and just kind of tell us, map, up, map out a little bit of where we're heading over the fall. Um, I reserve the right to change any and all of this <laughs> without notice, without uh, prior notice. But, uh, but this is how it's kind of scoping out for me uh, as I'm thinking it through and trying to put together this, uh, this section of, of instruction. So September, basically, the 10th and the 24th. The next week is a Front Range Bible Fellowship meeting to, uh, 2 to 6 p.m. for the men. Uh, so we're not going to meet that night. So the 10th and the 24th, that's tonight and two weeks from now. Basically, I want to introduce presuppositional apologetics. I'm going to illustrate it by looking at some contrasting examples. We're going to look at some of that tonight. And then we're going to contrast it with some more common approaches to apologetics. And I'm obviously going to be arguing for one that I think is really consistent with true, sound, biblical theology. Um, and that's what I'm going to commend to you. October 1st, and then we're going to skip, uh, I guess it's a couple weeks, skip to the 22nd. Uh, October 1st and the 22nd, I think there's some conference things in there. But we're going to be talking about the believer and a faithful testimony to Christ. So how we as believers present a faithful, basically apologetic or testimony to Christ using that presuppositional method. And then how that, that uh, confronts the unbeliever and his unexamined pre-commitments or his unexamined presuppositions. Now that may sound like a mouthful, but you're going you're gonna to be talking this language. Impressing all your friends. Uh, you're not going to impress anybody with this, but you are going um, to learn some terms that you're going to become very fluid in, and it's not going to be that difficult for you, but we'll get to that. October, that'll be the month for uh, talking about our testimony to Christ and then how we use that method to, uh, or to challenge or confront the unbelievers' unexamined presuppositions. November 5th and 12th, we got Thanksgiving coming. We're going to do a Thanksgiving service. Uh, but November 5th and 12th, we're going to explain the presuppositional approach. That is the transcendental argument, or transcendental argument for the existence of God and transcendental argumentation. That is without the God of the Bible, Christian distinctives, uh, Christian theism, um, you know, the, basically proving God by the impossibility of the contrary. That without God, without the truth of God, you can't know anything at all. There, there are no, you have no preconditions for intelligibility or intelligent reason or anything without presupposing the God of the Bible. So that's what we're going to get into in November. We're going to demonstrate, I'm going to teach, a, this is not my material, this is Greg Bonson. So I've tried to distill down Greg Bonson for you. And Greg Bonson has distilled down Cornelius Van Til for me. Okay, so it's going through a couple of filters. You're welcome, uh, because it's, it's thick stuff, but, um, but it's, I'm, I'm going to give Greg Bonson's four-step approach to this, this um, basically deconstructing 
uh, the unbelievers' worldview in general, and then we're going to talk more about deconstructing various unbelieving worldviews like atheism, Hinduism, Islam, Mormonism, all that. We're going to talk about that in November. In December, I want to round out the course by on the 3rd and the 10th, and then we'll take a break for the holiday uh, time. But um, I guess we are in church. I can't say Christmas, can't I? It's Christmas. It's not the holiday season. It's Christmas time. Um, but December 3rd and 10th, we're going to listen to a presuppositional approach to apologetics in action as we work through and discuss a debate between Greg Bonson, who is now in heaven, and Gordon uh, Stein. It's the debate, does God exist? Um, it's a scratchy, bad audio, but it's very, very useful. Uh, I have a full transcript of that, and I'm going to walk you through and show these, these apologetic principles, these presuppositional apologetic principles, live and in action. We're going to stop and say, okay, let's just talk about that, okay? So we're going to do some of that even tonight, not with the presuppositional approach, but, but uh, nonetheless. Okay, so that's the schedule. That's kind of where we're heading uh, in broad strokes. By way of introduction to our focus on apologetics, I'd like to begin by providing a very short uh, review, um, reflection, critique, maybe, of the way, way the Master video course that we used. As much as I hope you found that content helpful and even quite entertaining, I think Ray Comfort, Kirk Camion are gifted, very winsome men. I really enjoy them and how they approach. But I realize, and I want to acknowledge this, that the way the master material or the method is not the end-all, be-all for personal evangelism. It is a way. It is not the way. Ray and Kirk would say the exact same thing if we asked them. Um, they would, but they would quickly and rightly turn around and challenge us. Law, then gospel. Law, then gospel. If you remember nothing else from that series of instruction on those videos, Remember that, okay? Law then gospel in your evangelistic encounters. Until a sinner recognizes his own personal guilt before a holy God, the gospel will never make sense. You have to approach it that way. I mean, I, yeah, okay, so say what you want about, um, you know, the, the five-minute encounters on the street, and you don't like to do that. You don't like to hand out maybe some tracts or whatever. That's fine. You can do your own thing, but make sure you do what they've essentially said, because that is faithful to Scripture. So we can say it this way, um, and I know this is strong, but we need to say it. You're not being a faithful witness of God. You're not being obedient to Jesus Christ if you soft pedal the demands of God's law and the sinner's guilt before a holy God. Okay? So you're not, doing, you're not being faithful to God, and you're not doing the sinner any favors either. They need to hear their guilt before God, because, they, because that's what salvation is from, is from his wrath because of their guilt. As someone once said, if Jesus Christ is the answer, what's the question? What is the corresponding question to Jesus Christ being the answer? It's our guilt before a holy God, right? Okay? So I've affirmed the way the master material, and I, I do affirm it strongly, but I'm going to make three critiques, which I, again, I believe the way the master guys would affirm these critiques um, believe me, after this, this course is, they understand this, it's not designed to do everything. Uh, you can't slice bread with it or, you know, get your, get your car filled with gas. It's, it does one thing and it does it really well, okay? But so first thing to say, the way the master method 
is optimally designed for those short chance encounters that you have with people that you've never met before and may never see again, okay? It's really useful for that. Many of our gospel conversations, though, don't they? They involve relationship. They involve the silent, powerful witness of the lives that we live in front of them. Um, they involve the interaction and exchange of ideas uh, over, over time, sometimes several conversations, sometimes many conversations. But again, I want to go back and affirm that if you have those patterns in your mind, you know, the, the uh, pattern of law, then gospel, the WDJD, the C craft, all that stuff in your head, you're going to be ready for any conversation, short or long, okay? So optimally designed, yes, for short chance encounters. That's what they, that's kind of their stock and trade. That's what they do. And yet they all have, they all have unbelieving family members too, just like you. They have relationships that go on for a long time, just like you do. That's not all they do. They're also people just like us. And they use um, this material for all those conversations. So you can too. So, but I just did want to acknowledge that um, sometimes you're going to be, uh, approaching it a little bit differently, and that's okay. Secondly, the way the master material, it's good for providing a basic framework for evangelism, but you are responsible to study to show yourself approved. You're, you need to study to fill in that framework. So this is that material, that, that series was very good for teaching us a rudimentary gospel presentation to share with unbelievers without us getting lost in all the weeds, but you must study in faithfulness to Christ to fill in the depth and the breadth of that theology. We really, we want to work hard to be good vessels for carrying that precious truth of the gospel, uh, fit for the master's use, not lazy servants who never study uh, their master's word, their master's work. We don't want to be like that. This is the deeper, the the fuller we know and understand the truth, the more useful the Lord is going to make us in his service, the more faithful that we're going to be as stewards of grand gospel mysteries. Okay, before I mention one more critique, a third critique, I want to, and this is going to segue into our introduction to apologetics, I want to stop and see what general comments or questions you have about that Way of the Master uh, series, if there's anything you'd like to ask or clarify or just mention. Anybody have, have anything to say? Just the, um, yes, sir, Joe. With the... Um, the, the way the master, we, they mentioned that it works on the conscience, and and, and, and that that was important because the, the person you could when you watch, you could actually see where, where their 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 face changes. You know when they realize where they stand. Absolutely, and that's why again that's what the law then gospel approach is meant to do, is to speak directly to the conscience to make this not an issue between me and you but between us and a holy God. So you bring in the law of God, his standards, and then the conscience is at work in that unbeliever, because he knows. He's got the law of God written on his heart and a conscience that either accuses or excuses him. So his conscience in that conversation is your ally. And that's what, uh, uh, that's what I think is very, very powerful about their approach. So thank you, yeah, bringing up the issue of the conscience. It's very important, yes. Lord? I think one thing I appreciated was the fact that they really stressed that you shouldn't present the gospel in the way that probably so many of us have learned. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, I've met so many um, 
believers are, are people who think they're believers. And they, they think that because they're a believer, their life is going to be hunky-dory and everything is going to go well. And I mean, it's, it's spelled out so clearly in Scripture that we will have trials and tribulations and testings. But um, I really appreciated how they stressed that, that you're not doing anybody a favor mm -hmm. if you approach it that way. Yeah. Good. That Great. was a good point. So, so you're just pointing out the contrast that they, they taught using contrast, and that's important. And they had to contrast their approach with the uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life kind of approach to evangelism, which is not faithful. It's, it's, I call it a sub-Christian gospel, you know, because it's, it's almost there. It's got some elements, but it's not all there. And what is it to... Uh, a little bit off on the compass, right? It may not look so bad, you know, five feet down the road, but eventually you're off the map, aren't you? Yeah. It, it's true that he does have a wonderful plan for our lives once we're saved. But uh -huh. uh, that's not the issue. The issue is our standing before God. Right. right. The the issue when when you approach an unbeliever that way. Right. Right. That's what I mean. No, it's not. It's not just a matter of their eternal destiny. Like, boy, I don't know if this is one of the elect. I can't say wonderful plan to a non-elect person. No, that's not that issue. The issue is that we don't want to approach them, making it all about them, because that's exactly what they've learned from birth. It's all about me. They got bumper stickers on their parents' cars. It says they're how what a great kid they are. You know, they've had that all their life. <laughs> so when you approach them and say, "God's God's the same as everybody else in your life. He just wants to, you know, he's rushing to you and stuff." So, yeah, that's that's the issue. Uh, Leanna or Annie, Annie or Leanna? <laughs> yes. Um, I really appreciated how they put like an urgency to it. Yeah. Like it's, you know, they always, uh, if you get ran over by that random construction vehicle, what would happen to you? you know? Like it's, I've heard people share the gospel, but there's never that like, it's almost like, yeah, someday you can come and come yeah. to God and you'll be there. But, you know, like we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that out. That sense of urgency, which demonstrates two things in my mind. It demonstrates, number one, a clarity about truth because hell is real. I think I think in our times there has been such a diminishment um, and ignoring of that doctrine of hell. We don't think carefully about the doctrine of eternal punishment. Yeah. I mean, it's like, eh, take it or leave it. God, God's chasing you around, and maybe he'll catch up to you one day, but just enjoy that life, and hopefully nothing bad happens. It's kind of how people approach it. If you believe in hell, you're urgent. The second thing I appreciate is not just the clarity of truth, but also the compassion for people. The compassion for people. Right, let me add a third thing. Compassion for God and his holiness. So, God and his holiness, compassion for people, clarity about the truth. I, I agree with you. That's a great point. Mike? I like their example of, as you talked about humble boldness, yeah. and you took compassion from me. Um, they speak with such a compassion, and uh, it, I think it's a great example of how I want to evangelize when I'm in that situation. Yeah, let me, let me back that up to um, our own family members. I want to I treat my own family members with that kind of winsomeness, graciousness of speech, kindness, gentleness. Boy, if we just look in our own homes, if we, if we could record ourselves for just, you know, half a day, play it back, it's a good, good test and see where we are in our speech. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then to take that same gentleness that we practice all the time with our families and extend that out to unbelievers as well. That's really good. 
Yeah. Uh, a couple things. Yeah, a couple more, and then we need to move on. Darby. I liked how they're, they had their outline direct um, and presented it to people because we need to be as accurate as we can when leading others to Christ. But yeah. I mentioned last time if you have to tell them, you know, if you stumble and say, oh, I don't know that, then I'll get back to you. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's important too. So it's, it's helpful to be prepared, entering into a conversation, knowing where you're going to go. But it's also helpful to be flexible. So if you don't know something, you can say, hey, I, I'm not sure. Let me get back to you on that. That's a great question. So that's, that's a great point. Again, that comes back to that humility in our, in our witness. We're, we're not know-it-alls. We, of all people, know we're limited, finite creatures. We don't know it all, all right? Let's live that way. <laughs> I just, I'll be really brief about this, but I just thought I'd share that um, recent opportunity I had um, with, so there was, I was at a Starbucks and I got to use this approach with a guy, there was a, um, a, like a homeless guy in the Starbucks with me. And as he left, I saw him go out to his shopping cart and kind of wheel away. And I just felt really kind of bad for him to see a human being. Can you guys hear him in the back? Okay, great. I just felt bad for him seeing another human being living that way, you know, and I hate seeing that. And I, so I, I was struggling in my heart with like, I really should go talk to him. But he was like walking away and I was like losing opportunity and I was like, okay, I'll do it. And I just kind of ran out and grabbed like a, uh, a little paperback, uh, or I had, a, I had a paperback gospel of John that I was reading. And I ran that out to him and just said, hey, do you like to read? And gave that to him and, and just we started talking. I was asking him about his... Uh, where he's coming from, his job situation, all that. And um, and then I started into this stuff. And it was just a spur of the moment, quick thing. And it was really helpful to have that structure in my head. Um, and and it drove the conversation right where it needed to go and convict, you know, brought him to conviction. And he understood it. And I explained what the, the tract thing was, or the Gospel of John, and just told him to read it looking for such and such and how to be saved and all that. And, um, so it was, uh, it was helpful, and I kind of I was able to tailor it a little bit on the fly. I didn't use, um, I didn't ask him every question, so have you lied, have you stolen, have you, and make him answer. I just kind of walked through it and then said, so, you know, we've all done that. And so I was able to make it a little less... Um, Confrontational? Formulaic. Oh, formulaic. Yeah, and confrontational, yeah. It was, a little, it was a little easier on him, but he understood it and still had that same reaction. So, anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Good. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I think I've heard that there are some of us in here also who have been doing this in the past couple of weeks and found the, the same kind of thing. And, and to my knowledge, nobody has gotten socked in the jaw, right? <laughs> no, not yet. Nobody's been hurt, pushed over, robbed. Yeah. Lost a job. Lost a job. <laughs> that can happen. Yeah. Well, we learned this morning what will happen. Yeah, right. We know what our approach is going to be. Here, strike me again. <laughs> All right, so let's, uh, let, let me get back into uh, some notes I have here and grab your Bibles. Um, the, the, uh, oh, here's a, kind of a third, um, you know, critique or reflection. The, the way the master approach is, is really good for evangelistic encounters. But it really does, and I, and I think intentionally so, it bypasses the responsibility of all Christians to engage in the defense of the faith. You may remember how Ray and Kirk 
uh, encouraged us to bypass the intellect and speak to the conscience. I wouldn't put it that way, uh, because, but I know what they're saying. Um, the conscience and the intellect are totally engaged, okay? So I don't, I don't make that uh, bifurcation, but I know what they're saying. They're saying don't get into an intellectual boxing match with an unbeliever. And they're very wise to say that. That is, that is totally unprofitable. Uh, to get into a, a boxing match intellectually. They have a they have strong biblical warrant for warning us about not striving with unbelievers, and I just want to emphasize that. So go to 2 Timothy. I want, here's what I want you to do. I want this half of the room to go to 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, and let me get a reader in the ESV. Someone, Chris? Okay, you're going to read with your preacher's voice? Read with your preacher's voice. So you project. All right, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 in the ESV. And then on this half of the room, turn to 1 Peter 3, 14-16. I need one more reader reading out of the ESV. So we're all in this. Gary, thank you. All right? Uh, 1 Peter 3, 14-16. And again, it just it's emphasized my strong appreciation for that Way the Master's video course. Because those men have done us such a great service to give us a framework and some confidence to engage uh, unbelievers with the gospel, I commend it. I really appreciate it. You don't need to have a degree in philosophy or apologetics to feel confident enough to share the gospel if you go through that six whatever videos we went through. Um, in fact, I know some of you have already tried that out, the method out. It's helped you immensely, as Nicholas just said. I also want to augment that good material with an understanding of faithful apologetics. Uh, so you can go from where you are and go move from strength to strength in, your, in, in the strength and the confidence and the robustness of your gospel witness. You may remember that Kirk and Ray, they did also see the need to provide some apologetic answers, right? Some defenses. Remember those top 10 questions, that video that we went through? That's exactly what they were doing. Is just saying, okay, when you're asked this, how do you answer it? They gave responses. They're good responses. So they were basically there engaging in apologetics in that video. And so with that in mind, we want to consider a couple of crucial texts to help us understand what apologetics is and what it isn't. Um, and what we're going to learn about apologetics really harmonizes perfectly with what we learned in The Way of the Master. So let's take a look first at, I know you guys are over here just listening, or you can thumb over there if you want to, but take a look at 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 20 through 26. We'll listen to Chris. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Okay, thank you. Thank you. That was excellent. <coughs> excellent. So let, let's just, as you're looking at that, key thoughts here. We're not to be quarreling with people. We're not to be quarreling with people. That's not what apologetics is. We're to be kind and gentle. We're to be humble and meek. That's the first point. We're not to be quarreling. Second point, we must be able to teach, which requires us, as I was trying to emphasize before, to study the faith, to learn, to grow in knowledge and understanding. Okay, so we're not to be quarreling, number one. Number two, we're to, we're to be able to teach. 
Third, we must be patient with evil. That is like in, in evangelistic encounter, it could mean enduring vile speech, swear words, taking the Lord's name in vain, things that grate on a Christian's eardrums and are like nails on a chalkboard to us. But still, we endure those things. Um, scoffing, sometimes even slander and outright misrepresentation, lies, whatever. So we're not to be quarreling, number one. We're, we're to be able to teach. We're to be patient with evil. Number four, we must recognize that it's God, not us. It's not our intellects. It's not our arguments. It's not our study. It's not our cleverness. It's not our, win it's not our winsomeness and how attractive we are, how nice of people we are. None of that. It's God alone who grants repentance and leads people to the knowledge of the truth. Okay? So let that frame then the next passage we go to, 1 Peter 3, 14 to 16. We're going to see those same points emphasized over again, but in a different context. You know, Paul is speaking to Timothy as a pastor. Peter is speaking to believers, regular, regular Joes like us. Joes and James, I guess. All right? So we're uh, Gary, all right? Yes. <clears throat> but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Okay, thank you. So that really is the quintessential apologetic text. It actually uses that word apologia, uh, which is translated in the ESV as make a defense. I recently read Plato's little book, The Apology of Socrates. It's an account of his defense he made against the charges that the Athenian elders brought about his crime of basically perverting and corrupting the youth of Athens. Okay, so they put him to death for that. But it's the same word there, apologia, uh, defense, to make a defense. And notice in 1 Peter 3, at first, this verse does not require you to go on offense, right? Apologetics is defensive, not offensive. Whereas evangelism is proactive, apologetics is reactive. Apologetics is about making defense. It's about providing an explanation. So when an unbeliever asks about our behavior and or our doctrine, um, about the hope that is within us and all of that, that's when we respond. Okay, so let me just say that, um, well, I'll come back to that. The command here to always be ready, right? Always ready. That's a command for mental preparedness. Mental preparedness does not happen on the fly. That happens because you do what? You mentally prepare, you study, right? We have to study um, so that when the questions come and when that challenge is offered in the moment, when the scoffing comes, we're able to obey the Lord by 
making it offense. We need to provide not only intelligent and biblically informed answers, but answers that are faithful to God and his word and faithful to the Lordship of Christ over our minds, okay? So back to what we just saw in 2 Timothy 2.24, that we're required to study, to learn the faith once for all, to live with the saints, we're to know our stuff. We're not to stand silently in the face of mocking unbelievers or more likely before those unbelievers who are simply asking us questions to understand what we believe and why. Okay, we're to study. But it's defensive, not offensive. What we're going to learn here over the course of the next, you know, six or uh, eight weeks or whatever it is, um, some pretty powerful, pretty potent stuff. It's, it's going to be very, very strong. And your temptation is going to want to be to go out there and give it a try. <laughs> That's my temptation anyway. You know, every, every guy that gets a gun wants to shoot it, right? <laughs> why, would you, why would you not want to shoot it? Um, that's why you buy the gun. It's the same thing here. These are very, very powerful and potent arguments, and you're going to want to go out and try it. And I'm just telling you, it's a, it's a defense. It's a defense. We have to do this in humility. We'll get back to that in a second. Second, second point from 1 Peter, Peter 3, 14, 16. And the rest of you on this side of the room, go ahead and join us in 1 Peter 3. We're going to be there, so if you're there. This is the second thing, same thing we said in 2 Timothy 2, 24, 26. You're not required to persuade anyone of anything. Okay? That's not your job. You're required to give an answer and make a defense for Christian truth and conduct. For persuasion is God's work, which only He can accomplish by the Holy Spirit. As Greg Bonson has rightly said, you can close the mouth of the critic, but only God can open the heart. That's exactly right. Our job is to close mouths. Uh, Way the Master said that same thing. It's to silence the talk of the unbeliever. Silence all that foolishness by taking them right to the law, putting them between law, God's law and their heart. Okay, So silence, silence their foolish talk. Romans 3.19, that every mouth may be stopped. That's the purpose of the law. And then we leave it to God to open hearts. So let me ask, I'm going to pause right here in my second of four points. <laughs> so I want to ask a fundamental question. What is the purpose of apologetics? We, we actually asked this at the beginning of the course uh, back in January, February, I don't know. But if God is the one who's doing the persuading, what's the point of us doing apologetics or defending the faith at all? Why are we doing it? There's a, a verse that says, I'm not sure where it is, but it says, let your reasonableness be known to all. And I think it's a matter of showing that to people so that God is glorified for his truth. Okay, let our reasonableness be known to all in the context of how we respond to suffering. Uh, Lori and Chuck. Um, kind of goes along with what Nicholas said. Um, when we give an apology for the faith, a defense of the faith, it does bring glory to God. Okay. That, that's a huge thing. Plus, how, how does it bring glory to blessing. God? Yes, yes, it's also a blessing. I want to come back to that. How does it give glory to God, though? Um, because we're, we're boldly speaking out what we believe. Okay. Um, we're being obedient to what God has commanded us to do. Okay. And I think all those things bring you glory. All right. All right. So I've heard some cultists boldly speaking out about what they believe. But they're not boldly speaking the truth. Exactly. exactly. So, so, so ours boldly speaking the truth, which is putting God's wisdom out there on display. It's it's showing reasonableness. It's showing truth. It's showing a, an argument that an unbeliever can't. I mean, they will pretend to overcome it, but 
they can't overcome. That brings glory to God. And then the second thing you said, it brings us joy, right? To do that. Yeah. Great. Chuck. Oh, well, Christ said, go. Okay. So it's a command. So it's a command. You've got to do this. It's a command. Uh, let's go, let's start with, I don't know, age before youth. Let's go with your dad first. <laughs> I was just thinking of Jude, just the idea that we're to contend earnestly for the faith. So it's a command. But the other thing is to be able to, um, again, uh, point out false teaching to, and that's a protective measure for the rest of the church and the flock as well. So we need to know why we teach what we teach. Again, it comes back to studying to show okay. yourself a food, but it's, Great. it's protect the flock as well. Okay, so all this, um, all this mental preparedness and study and, and understanding, full, complete knowledge as much as we can, uh, and get our arms around it, that's, that is strengthening us. And especially as we're thinking about contrary arguments that are coming to us, we have to put the truth up against those contrary arguments. And as, as we do that, those arguments melt away and the truth stands firm. What does that do for our confidence? What does that do for the church's confidence? That's also the usefulness of this. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Because, well, I think just when you understand it as a, a, a defense, then it just leads naturally. And because, because we love God, because we love God, if we yeah. hear someone saying negative stuff or misrepresenting, yeah, misrepresenting, we'll speak up, we'll say something, just like if, you know, if I heard someone saying something mean about my wife, mm. I would go up and tell them that none of that that you just said is true. Good. I wouldn't just go up to a stranger and start telling him, well, you better not be thinking negative stuff about my wife. <laughs> but if they're saying yeah, something, that's a good analogy. If they're that's saying right. something, I'm going to go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna You're going to speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very helpful. Good comments, you guys. Thank you. So I, just to remind you of several purposes for doing apologetics, um, and these are interacting with things you've already said. So doing apologetics is a matter of obedience to God, you know, starting out there. And this has to do with our love and devotion to God. So all of that is, is part of that. Doing, doing apologetics teaches us true loyalty. By defending God and his word, we learn to side with God and to stand with him and to not fear man. So we, we're loyal to God, not to man. We're loyal to God and his interests and his will, his purposes, not to man and his rebellious purposes. We're not loyal to man. We're defending God's word in the face of opposition. That's going to cement our allegiance to God and steal our conviction. Okay? Doing apologetics, thirdly, it deepens our convictions in the truth. It strengthens our own faith as we understand the scripture well enough to provide reasons why we believe. Uh, and by engaging in these apologetic discussions, we learn the unbeliever, uh, honestly, it's a, it's a paper tiger. They, they have no good reasons for not believing, for not repenting, for not pursuing Christ. No good reasons at all. And number four, doing apologetics is the means uh, one means by which God informs the conscience, accomplishing his will in the heart of the unbeliever, either to save or to render him without excuse. Remember Isaiah 55? Um, we all quote Isaiah 55. You know, God's word will not return to me void, but it will accomplish, will accomplish what? The purpose for which I send it. It's going to accomplish the purpose for which he sends it. And sometimes his word goes out to judge and condemn Sometimes it goes out to save. We need to recognize that the 
the gospel, like all the revelation of God, the gospel also has a twofold purpose. In 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16, it's both to save and to damn. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, that is, stealing them in their unbelief, and to the other, fragrance from life to life. So, um, you know, as they say, the same sun that hardens the wax, or uh, softens the wax, hardens the clay. It's the same thing with God's revelation, God's truth, and the gospel is no different. So understand all those purposes are at work when we're doing apologetics. Now, the fact that it's God who persuades sinners by his spirit, that does not give us license to be lazy. It doesn't give us license to give bad answers to questions uh, or to make use of bad arguments. And when I say bad arguments, I don't mean just lame arguments. I mean unfaithful arguments. We need to use arguments that are faithful to the pattern of theology that we understand from Scripture and be consistent with that theology. And we're going to see that, that there is sound theology from Scripture, and then people will set that aside, and they'll use a whole different pattern of argumentation that actually wins friends and influences people. No, no, that's not faithful. We need to be faithful to Scripture and keep our theology ourselves grounded in our theology and our answers coming up out of that theology, our apologetic answers and our evangelism being faithful to scripture, okay? So our task is to prevent, uh, present, not prevent, not prevent, present a faithful and sound witness, okay? So back to our bigger outline where I said, first of all, 1 Peter 3, 14, 15, 16, this verse does not require you to go on the, uh, on offense. Apologetics is defensive, not offensive. Second, you're not required to persuade anyone of anything. Third, and this is with 2 Timothy 2.24 in mind as well, we're not, to be, we're not to be argumentative. We are to make arguments, okay? You understand the difference between making an argument and being argumentative. Being argumentative is being combative, it's being quarrelsome. Making an argument is just making a, you know, this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. It's an argument. It's, a, it's an apologetic defense you're offering, okay? That's all we're saying. So we're to make our defense, though, with gentleness in our speech, in our behavior, an attitude of respect toward the other person. And, and sometimes, I remember it was, um, I can't remember who said it, but they told us about a, an encounter with someone at the Greeley Mall who came up to her and said, did you know you're a goddess? You know, and, and you look at that and you're thinking. That was Carrie, and we had the same thing. Did you really? Yeah, it's the Church of the Mother or something. Church of the, yeah. yeah no, they've come here. They used to come to our um, uh, yeah, our food closet, pantry, yeah. our closet, yeah. 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 And, and they had some of uh, those people here, too. Yeah, yeah, Lori said that. Brad, did they win you with that whole goddess? <laughs> <laughs> was that convincing for you? No, I didn't think so. Um, I'm very glad to hear it. What are you talking about? <laughs> again. <laughs> um, but, you know, some of the stuff can seem like absolute lunacy. So, and some of those things are absolute lunacy and crazy talk, but that's the darkness of the mind that's under the influence of, of you know, the blindness of, of Satan and his minions and all that. So, and the blindness of sin. Respect that person. Even if they're talking crazy, Respect that person. Be kind to them. Treat them like a person. Okay? So keep a good conscience also, First Peter 3 says, uh, before the only one who truly knows our conscience, who knows our mind and knows our motives. If we are most concerned about what he sees, 
what comes out on the outside is going to also be restrained by that concern of the fear of the Lord and our conscience, right conscience before God. God is going to hold us accountable, not only for what we say, but how we say it as well. Okay, both things are important. I've said some very true things in some very unkind ways. And boy, is that not commendable. Let me just put it that way. It's bad. All right. So fourth thing, um, you don't engage in defending a faith with a different authority than the authority that exists for all of our theology. Okay. That's what I was kind of saying before. Peter says that in our hearts we're to honor Christ the Lord as holy, or as the NAS translate that, translates that, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That is, or any uh, New English translation, set, a, set Christ apart as Lord. So sweep everything away. He is Lord. No other is Lord. Okay? No other th way of thinking, no other worldview, no secularism, no, you know, relativism, no skepticism. None of that is Lord. Christ is Lord. His theology is your theology, and his apologetic is your apologetic. That is to say... If he set apart as Lord in your heart, and heart here is referring to the mind, the reasoning, the thinking, you set apart Christ as Lord in your heart as holy, no other authority is allowed. Okay, you are disallowed from appealing to any other authority, chief of which is man's autonomous reason. We do not bow before their reason. We don't try to present all their arguments in ways that seem, may, we think may seem reasonable to them because their reason is the sole judge of all, uh, it's the sole arbiter of all truth. No, God is the sole arbiter. And we need to treat him as holy, okay? No other authority is allowed. So, one of uh, most, most of today's methods for defending the faith, they depend on human reason and experience. And that is an authority, human reason and experience. It's coming from man. That's antithetical to the Christian worldview. It's the same, basically the same authority as the unbeliever has. You're just stepping onto the same ground as he is. So don't do that. Um, singular authority for the believer is God, as revealed in Christ and in his holy word. People today, though, uh, think they ought to uh, submit to one authority in the church or in their private lives or in their daily devotions, but when it comes to intellectual engagement with the unbelieving world, when it comes to higher education, when it comes to your business practices, when it comes to your politics, whatever, we submit to the authority of what's accepted by human reason, by human practice, what's observable by human experience. Many Christians claim in all sincerity of conscience that the Bible is their ultimate authority, and yet when it comes to talking with an unbeliever, they want to set the Bible aside and appeal to human reason, shared experience, or whatever else to justify the Bible's claims. Think about that. If you justify the Bible or validate the Bible with something other than the Bible, what's the true authority? That by which you justify the Bible, right? So that's a double-mindedness that doesn't please God at all. It's an error that uh, Greg Bonson actually calls, quote, the most pervasive epistemological error in the Christian church today. Epistemology means just pertaining to the theory of knowledge, how we know what we know. Okay, we're going to talk about that. So he, he calls this sort of tongue-in-cheek. He calls this, you know, using one authority over here and using another authority over here 
authority of the Bible in my church or devotions or how I raise my family, but once I get outside the home and I start talking to unbelievers and all of a sudden I set aside the Bible and just say, well, let's use reason, let's not use that argumentation, let's use this argumentation, one that appeals to you and makes sense to you, he calls that epistemological schizophrenia. It's being of two, two minds. I love that term. So. The way to escape this epistemological schizophrenia is to become epistemologically self-conscious. Self-conscious. That's to say we need to be self-conscious, fully aware of the implications of our theology and be consistent from our theology all the way up to the way we speak, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we engage. Okay? So Christ is Lord of our hearts, Lord of our minds. We're to love the Lord of our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we carry that devotion to Christ into everything, especially in the conversations with unbelievers. Okay, I'm looking at the time, and I have something to get to here, so I'm going to skip a couple things. And I want to show you, let me, let me just mention this verse, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. You, you just listen. Um, Paul tells the Corinthian believers, now remember, these are Corinthians. You guys know the Corinthians, right? Corinthian church, not a, not a great place to be in 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, they've done some repenting, better place to be. But these are not apostles, they're not apologists, they're not intellectual elites and academics. They're regular church-going folks, just like me and you, and Paul told them this. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Whose thoughts are we taking captive? Ours or the unbelievers? Yes. <laughs> yes, both, right? Every thought captive means theirs and ours. Every thought is captive to the obedience of Christ. That is, we're going to take the unbelievers' thinking. We're, for our own thinking, is going to be obedient to Christ. We're going to try to be as consistent as possible. And then we're going to take the unbelievers' thinking and compare that to obedience to Christ. And we're going to deconstruct their worldview and their thinking. Okay? So, to illustrate that, the power of our theology worked out in a methodology of an apologetic methodology. I want to show you a contrast in two apologetic encounters on the video here. Um, got two things pulled up for you. These are two different Christian apologetics, uh, apologists. They come from basically two different theological perspectives or commitments, and that does result in two different apologetic approaches, which you're going you're gonna to notice, even if you can't put your finger on it exactly. But what's really helpful is that these two different Christian apologists are engaged in a public debate with the same unbeliever. So the atheist is David Silverman, and in 2013, he debated uh, Frank Turek, who's a well-known Christian apologist. He wrote a couple of very popular books. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It's one of them stealing from God, and why atheists need God to make their case. So that's, a, that's one, and he's right about that. That's a very good point, um, but we'll get to that. So then in, that's in 2013, David Silverman and Frank Turek, and then in 2014, David Silverman debated James White. He's perhaps less widely known, some of you know, but he's a, he's a formidable debater. He's written letters to a Mormon elder, is a Mormon, my brother, the Forgotten Trinity, and other uh, books as well. Both men are very, very sharp, uh, sincere Christians, gifted apologists, self-professed 
um, uh, self-professed Calvinist even, but as we'll see, Frank Turek is less committed to those Protestant reform distinctives than James White is, which means he's going to be less consistent with his biblical theology, and that clearly comes out in his apologetic approach. You'll see that. I want you to see that. I want you to see the differences in theological consistency, the differences in the apologetic approach, and how that works out in the course of this cross-examination from David Silverman. What makes this really useful is it's not just the same atheist, Silverman, but he had actually uses the same objection on both apologists in this little segment I'm going to show you. He poses the same argument to Frank Turek in 2013, and then the same one to James White in 2014 when he's denying the existence of God. And this particular objection centers on the problem of evil. Okay? I can see from the time that we don't have time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, there's some interaction nice I'd like setup, to though. <laughs> yeah, so let's just close in prayer. <laughs> no, but what we're going to do is we're going to play, I'm going to play the segments, and I don't think I'll have the time I'd like to stop and interact with you, but we've got to keep moving. I'm sorry. But, um, but I do want to say this about the problem of evil. Um, this is the, the objection, and centers on the problem of evil. Here's how he poses the problem, and you're going to hear this time and again. If God is all-powerful, that is, he's omnipotent. If God is omniscient and omnibenevolent, well, then why does he allow evil? Get the problem? If he's doesn't, doesn't allowing evil when he can put an end to it make him the greatest monster of all? That's the objection. And the challenge is called theodicy. Um, the, the, theos, the word for God, and dikaios, the di, uh, you know, kappa, is is for justification. So it's how to justify God. It's how to attempt to vindicate God's goodness, power, knowledge, or whatever in light of the existence of evil. So I ask you to interact with that, but we don't have time. So I'm just going to tell you. I want I want you to know the answer as we're going through this, lest any of you be be troubled. But God is all powerful. Okay. He is all good, he is all knowing, and he is also all wise. So since he has the power to stop evil, but doesn't, at least at this point, and since he has the goodness to abhor evil, but he doesn't stop it, and since he knew beforehand from eternity past all the sad, tragic, painful implications of evil, the fact that he's not yet brought a full and final end to evil means he has a good and wise reason for the continuing of evil, okay? This is one of those problems that exposes whether you are a Christian or not. Because if we're a Christian, we've already answered the question, I've come to Christ by faith. I trust God. I trust his goodness, his character, his wisdom, his power, his eternal nature. I trust him. And so when I see things that don't make sense, I trust him to figure it out. I trust that when something is there, like I've seen some terrible and heard about and read about some terrible things that have happened in evil's name. And you just wonder, well, God, can't you put an end to that? At least that one. It is a hard, some, sometimes and this gets really poignant when you deal with actual situations to ask, why does God allow that? Well, we don't want to be uh, we don't want to be cavalier in our uh, argument, in our um, responses to this. We need to be very compassionate and understand that this is a difficult problem that many people have actually lived through. But we need to understand 
that our theology teaches from Scripture mm -hmm. that God has decreed from eternity past all things that come to pass. That includes evil as well. Why is that? Because the point of all creation and all redemption involves the presence of evil. And the point of all creation and redemption is to put the full glory of God on display. Without the presence of evil, we cannot see the justice of God, the patience of God, the wrath of God, the kindness of God, the severity of God. Without the presence of evil, we wouldn't know the redeeming grace of God because there would be no redemption. Without the presence of evil, there would have been no occasion for the revelation of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is the Lamb who was slain, Revelation 13, 8, from the foundation of the world. He's the second Adam. He's the perfect representation of the head of the human race, a representative head of the human race, I should say. He's the, the absolute pinnacle of God's creation, the perfect mediator between God and man. Therefore, he is the only one who is able to bring the honor to God, and he's the only one able to glorify him fully, and we are found in him. It's so important. Now, that theology of God not being the author of evil, but decreeing evil, being primary cause, but not secondary culpable cause, that theology, which is consistent with Scripture, who ordains all things that come, he ordains all things that come to pass, he is absolutely sovereign over all things. If that, if that is informing our theology, well, it goes right into our apologetics as well. If we do not believe that God is absolutely sovereign, but that we, our own free will, kind of jockeys with God in, in the dock, and we kind of wrestle around, and the free will of man is ultimately sovereign in our salvation, that's going to be determinative as well in our apologetics. That's what I want to show you, okay? I want you to see the difference between these two encounters. And we're going to start with David Silverman versus Frank Turek. We... Uh, like to stop and make comments. This thing blink? Yes. Red light should be blinking. It's blinking. Okay, okay, it's blinking. Okay, good. Yeah, it's and check on the mouse. Um, let me uh, let me say this real quick, just as a um, a little bit of a warning. David Silverman gets a little worked up at the end of the section of this video. It's about seven minutes in. He uses some strong language. Not, uh, yeah, I guess you could call it a, a swear word, maybe one of those G, you know, PG-rated swear words or whatever. But he uses some strong language in slandering God, and I think it's, I do think it's important for instructive purposes to witness. If any of you are sensitive about that, I want you to feel free to step out um, and not watch this. And, um, and if, if you totally disagree with me on this, uh, please forgive me. And, um, but, it's, it's, uh, but I think it's important to see. This is the wrong oh, one. Oh, this is the wrong one. Thank you. Here we go. David, you can keep going. Oh. You can ask Frank. Oh, no, let's, let's go on to evil. Because, you know, you brought up the word evil and you said, I'm supposed to bring up the word evil. And then you totally eliminated and went around the problem of evil. So I want to talk a little bit about the problem of evil. You said that in order that evil proves God because objective evil proves objective good. Yeah. I'm telling you there's no objective evil either. Well, then what are you complaining so about? What I'm complaining about is I, I want to know about the real problem of evil that Christianity faces. If God is all-powerful and omniscient 
and omnibenevolent. Why does he need babies to be born with cancer? Okay, now actually what, what you're talking about here is a theological question that can be answered if the scriptures are true by going to the scriptures, but we're not... Listen for the dancing. Listen for the dancing. No, 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 hold on. You've got an all-powerful God. He can, he can do whatever he wants and he doesn't need okay. babies to have cancer. We've got an all-knowing God. So he knows every baby that's going to get cancer. Now the only thing left is benevolence. Divine benevolence... And tell me why a God who can do anything under any circumstances needs babies with cancer. Excellent question. I know. No. <laughs> no. I know. Notice how Frank Turek said, well, the Bible has answers, but we're not. Basically, he's setting the right. Bible aside. Yes, he is. Yes, no, yes. And, and you're going to hear the audience is all on Frank Turek's side. Okay. He's setting it aside because he thinks he has to do that in this debate. We live in a fallen world, don't we? Well, that's a good excuse. Well, but you can't, you can't blame. What if, it's, what if it's true? Oh, what if anything is true? The question is, here to why do we now. need? Why do we need? Why does God need babies to be born with cancer? Please, let me, let me. God, God doesn't need it. God might allow it because He's omnibenevolent. Okay, yeah. Hold on. Let's let's get there. Let's get to I, I, I can't. I. I I can't say anything better than this one minute and 46 second video, which I'm going to show you, and hopefully- I don't want a video, I want you to tell me. Oh, I will tell you, because I'm telling you through this video. Okay, so stand by. I think we need uh, HDMI 3 on, it is? Hey, stand by. Not the only one. All right, it better be good, man. It's better be good. It is not good. I'm totally hey, gonna kick hey, it there's off. no such thing as good. It's all relevant. It is all relevant. <laughs> all right, all right you gotta listen. You gotta watch closely, David. I'm sorry, you got a bad angle here, but you really gotta watch closely. You ready, guys? Ready to go? We got sound. Here we go. Is God good? If He is, why is there suffering and evil? for the moment that God is all-powerful. This means that God can do anything that is logically possible. So he can create galaxies and subatomic particles and rainforests and you. But God cannot do what is logically impossible. He cannot make a square circle or a one-ended stick. So can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? No. So what if when God created human beings, he wanted them to be free? Freedom's a good thing, but if humans are to be free, they cannot be forced to obey God. Because freedom without choice is like a square circle. It's a logical contradiction. No choice, no freedom. God didn't want robots. He wanted real people. The first humans endowed with the awesome power of free choice abused their freedom. The tragic consequences of their bad choice and our bad choices ripple across the world. God is responsible for the fact of freedom, but humans are responsible for their acts of freedom. But let's remember, we don't suffer alone. God will put an end to suffering and evil. God became a man to suffer with us. God is good 
and he wants real people like you to know him. But the free choice is yours. So the ultimate answer. Okay. So before I play it on real quick, and without getting into a discussion of libertarian free will and the clear biblical concept of free will that is remanded to its sphere, is the unbeliever truly free in his will? No. No, no. If freedom is defined biblically as the ability to obey all God's word and all God's will and all God's laws, no. He's not free. It takes regeneration of the heart. It takes being born again in order to make that person able to be free, to truly run in the path of God's commands, for you have set my heart free, David said, right? So without, but without going into a full discussion of the problem with libertarian free will, that video was maybe interesting for me and you, who are already convinced and already believe. You think it, you think it convinced David Silverman? No. no. Do, you, do you know why? Can you, can you tell why? It just avoided the yeah. issue, didn't it? It just kicked the can down the road. Keep, uh, there's going to be more can kicking. To the question is we have free will. And why do we have free will? Because that's the only way we can have love. Free will. Yes, free will. You're actually right away. God wants babies to be born with cancer so that we can have free will. We couldn't have free will if babies didn't have cancer. No, no, no. What I'm, not, what, what I'm saying is what the saying. entrance of evil into the universe was a result of free choice. And the reason we had free choice was because that's the only way we could have love, but this also creates the possibility for evil. The entrance of evil into the universe was a result of free choice. Yes. Let's talk about that for a second, yes. okay? Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, mm -hmm. and God is there with Dave. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm sorry, you brought it up. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm allowed to do this. I, I understand. Want to keep going on this? Yeah, I want, I want to finish the thought here on evil, if you don't mind. Yeah, let's okay. keep doing this, because okay. this is good stuff. Okay, all right. and God knows the future, mm -hmm. and God puts the tree of knowledge of good and evil in spot F. Yes. And when he does that, he's omniscient, mm -hmm. and he knows sure. that Adam is going to eat that fruit. Yeah. He knows it's going to, put, put the, to cause the fall of man, and billions of souls will go to hell, mm -hmm. and according to you, babies will start being born with cancer. Okay. If he puts the tree of knowledge over here, it doesn't happen. Or if he doesn't put it there at all, it doesn't happen. But God puts it where he knows with 100% certainty that Adam is going to eat of that fruit. Who made that choice? God knows the end from the beginning. Yeah. And he created the universe, and he created what would, he knew what would happen. Anytime you want to answer the question, I'm getting there. But that doesn't mean people don't have free choice. And you're saying that God then could not have done that if somebody sinned. Well, let me ask you a question. That's not what I said at all. What I asked you was, uh -huh. who? made the choice in the Garden of Eden. Adam, Adam and Eve did. Adam yeah. and Eve made the choice. Now, let me ask a question. Let me put it this way. God knows with 100% certainty mm -hmm. that if I put the tree of knowledge here, billions of souls go to hell and babies get cancer, according to you, mm -hmm. which doesn't follow either, but I'll let you pass it. But wait, wait, wait. There's it's not over here. No, no, hold on, hold on. No, no. Here's there's the nothing wrong with babies getting cancer because it's all relative. There's, you know what? I judge that. I judge that well, that's just your But you're also avoiding the question in a great big way. No, no, no. If, if you allow me to continue with my presentation, I'll go in. Another video? I want you to answer it's not another video. Okay, answer me. When God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil here instead of here, mm -hmm. knowing that when he put it here, 
knowing with 100% certainty. I got it. Let me answer. Okay. Go for it. Here's, 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 the, here's the problem. The problem here, David, is that you're assuming that God could have created another universe where nobody sinned. That, while it's logically... Okay. And just for the sake of time, I'm not going to... We'll, we won't follow the track of his, his, his attempt to explain Molinism, which is the theory of middle knowledge, to uh, David Silverman. Uh, it's, and, I, and I won't belabor the point by explaining all that to you, but we will come back to it because I, I do want you to understand that. that. This whole middle knowledge theory is completely a philosophical construct that has no basis in Scripture whatsoever. It's, um, anyway, just that's what he's going to go to and try to explain, try to dig his way out of this thing philosophically. Now, who's the brother in this video? He is. Frank Turk is our brother, okay? It's, it's really difficult to watch him struggle. It really is. But he is not answering David Silverman's question, right? Which he's never is, allowed to. He's, no, 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 he's interrupting. He's driving me. He has the upper hand. He doesn't know. He's in control of the conversation. Yes. The atheist, the atheist is in control of the conversation. But I think that to me, every believer has the ability to, you know, Christians are known to be simpletons. I mean, the simple people, but I think God has given us a mind and, and intellect yeah. to be able to, every time, every time I listen to uh, Ravi Zacharias, it's, he puts the opposition into shame. Yes. And I think that it's a special gift that he has from God to be able to go to the highest intellectual places and argue and win and let them respect him. He, yes. He's got a great tone, a great winsome way about him, but I want to tell you yeah. that he has the same apologetic approach as Frank Turk. The same. And so that's what we need to clarify and discover and, and draw out. We're, and we're going to see that. And I want you to see it in this video here, the contrast, okay? Um, what Frank Turk does, and he goes down the middle knowledge view, and, and I, I'm shutting it off, and so all those little warnings I gave at the beginning, don't worry about it, uh, because we're not going to see it. But what happens is David Silverman becomes more agitated in his, really his slander against God. And he says, you're God, and he doesn't call, he calls him basically a monster. Your God is a monster. And that... That's what, now, David Silverman is responsible for his actions, his words, his slander, his blasphemy. He's responsible for that complete rejection, rebellion. That's total rebellion on display. I think Frank Turk is responsible for getting up into a public venue mm -hmm. and engaging in a public debate before an audience. Clearly, he knows these kind of objections are going to come up, and to come up with that as an answer, to play a video for him, that sophomore. Did it, Real quick. Did part of it go that way because he let Dave, David, this is the atheist, right? Because mm -hmm. he let David frame the argument by ignoring the well, Bible? It's, it's a moderated debate, which is more than two hours, and it's there's a section for cross-examination, so okay. this is appropriate to the, the okay. place in the debate. They've done opening statements, they've, they've cross-examined those, they've... Uh, They've given rebuttals, they've gone through cross-examinations, etc. So, okay. okay, so um, now, now watch this, uh, this different encounter. And um, Oh, and by the way, Frank Turek, when he said um, babies having cancer, that's all, it doesn't matter because it's all relative. Don't, 
That's true. You know, he's just trying to, he's trying to, you know, use that guy's logic against him. But you guys have to be very, very careful and deliberate not to say things like that that could win a point but are going to lose the war. So don't do that. You see? You can be right. This is different video. There you go. I'm really having a good time tonight. I hope you're all having a good time tonight and enjoying yourselves. I really appreciate the hospitality that being offered. Dr. White, um, let's talk a bit about original sin. Um, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. Before they eat that apple, we'll call it an apple, they're perfect, yes? Yes, sir. <laughs> I mean, testing one, two, okay, there you go. Perfect as in God created them to be upright, yes. Perfect as in knowing good from evil? Um, not in the sense that they had, ex not experientially as yet, no. Okay. So Adam is in the Garden of Eden, and God puts the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. Adam hasn't sinned yet. Adam hasn't eaten the apple yet. God knows at that point in time, that you and I are going to have this conversation right now. Not only knows that he decreed it, that's why he knows it. His knowledge is based upon his decree. Okay. So, Adam, eating the apple was part of God's plan. Yes, sir. Are there babies in hell? Are there babies in hell? Yeah. <laughs> um, as you may have, I'm not sure if you were quoting me when you were talking or not, uh, I believe that God has the exact same freedom in the salvation of infants that he has in the salvation of adults. It's not and, yeah, that's not my question. Uh, well, but I'm explaining sorry. it so sorry. you, you asked uh, the quote-unquote babies in hell. Um, I believe that God has the same freedom in the salvation of infants that he has in adults, since all of us, no matter what our stage of development, are fallen sons and daughters of Adam, then God would not be under any compulsion to show mercy to anyone but I believe that he does, uh, based upon the very same freedom that he has in saving any adult person as well. So I do not know, I cannot look someone, and I've been a hospital chaplain, so I've had to do this more than once. I cannot look at someone and uh, play God and tell them what God is going to do in that situation. My response always is the judge of all the earth will do right and leave it to the very same thing that I do with my children or, or anyone in my family. So when at... So you, you heard that answer about babies who die in infancy, will they go to heaven? And he says, well, judge of all the earth will do what's right. Yeah. It's theologically accurate. I think, though, biblically, we can go further. And I do believe that babies who die in infancy, like, like people who die outside of a, a condition of accountability, let's say mental retardation or brain injury or whatever the case, maybe age. Um, I do believe we have biblical warrant in Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15, which says that when the dead are raised and stand before God, they will be judged according to what? Their works. Twice it says that. An infant who dies guilty of original sin, yes. they have any works they're going to be answering for their own? I do believe that we can tell parents who lose a baby in infancy that baby's in heaven. And I think we need to. I think we have a warrant, and I think we have a pastoral shepherding responsibility to do that. James White comes from a slightly different perspective. 
he's willing to go only so far, I'm willing to go a little further. That's what I believe. I just want to, I just want to clarify that so you don't take this and run with it. All right? Adam was about to eat that apple when God put that tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. He knew that he would be in this situation right now. He decreed it. He insisted on it. He made it happen. He chose to glorify himself in this particular fashion uh, through the atonement of Christ. Yeah. He, he made it happen. When you say made it happen, what do you mean? Are you differentiating between primary movers, secondary means, etc., etc.? I'm saying that if I take my keys and I drop them, the keys have no will. I'm saying that I know that I'm going to drop these keys and they're going to fall. I knew that was going to happen, but God was more sure than I was that Adam would eat the fruit, that Adam would cause the fall of that, that that would cause the fall of man, and that billions and billions of souls created by God, who he loved, would go to hell as a result. God's knowledge of the future is not analogous to your knowledge of physical laws. That would be a category here. However, if you're, the point that you're making is that God knows the future and that the future flows from his own decree, of course, what did not follow was the conclusion that you included in your question. Is it not then God's will that billions and billions of souls are in hell? It is God's will to glorify himself in the salvation of particular people and to demonstrate his justice and his just punishment of many others. I don't know, first of all, I don't think there's anybody in hell right now, so I want to correct that. Uh, I believe that's a future state. Uh, but uh, the fact of the matter is, I don't know what the percentage of people is going to be who are going to experience his grace, the percentage of people is going to be who will not. So I don't know how many people there are, but their just punishment was not only known to God, but the result of his will from the beginning. Yes, no question about that. So you don't think that there's anybody damned? No, I, I do believe that there are people that are damned. All I said was hell is a, if, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, it says that death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Mm -hmm. The dead right now are not in a place called hell, they're in a place called Hades. They're not the same thing. Maybe you're confusing mm -hmm. those two terms. Mm -hmm. But God had all of this in mind when Adam ate the, ate the apple. Ephesians in fact, chapter. it was God's will. It was God's intention. God could have stopped it if he didn't want it to happen. But he chose not to. Certainly God could have stopped anything that he did not want to have happen, okay. uh, as he does very regularly in curbing the evil of man. We never thank him for that. But I do differentiate very strongly between talking about God's decree and the fact that God's will, as revealed to us, is found in his law. We don't know what God's secret decree is. God's will says, thou shalt not murder. Uh, so you need uh, you need to differentiate when you're using the term will because you're asking a Christian theologian what he believes about that, and I will have to differentiate uh, on the basis of the scripture that. I'm confused. Okay. God could put everyone in heaven anytime he wanted to. God could show his grace. God could show himself. God has, and many times during the Bible, very complex question. You've already gotten to two different places that I would have to interrupt you and to uh, answer part of the question. Please do. 
when you said God could, are you talking about before creation, before he began to do his work, or are you talking about now? Both. Uh, well, theoretically, prior to the, the fall of man and to the working out of his will, uh, God could have just created us all to go to heaven, and that would have been it. He never would have glorified himself in the cross. He never would have demonstrated his love or mercy. He could have, theoretically. <clears throat> but once the fall took place, uh, then no longer is that a theoretical possibility. Uh, because God has already begun to act, make promises, and God's not going to go back upon the promises he's already made to the prophets, wherever else it might be. So uh, you have to pick and choose which, which uh, uh, area you're going to approach there. Let's do that again. God could not choose right now to send everybody to heaven? Uh, no, because he's made, he's made revelation. He has re revealed uh, exactly how a person is to go to heaven and exactly upon what grounds he has given prophecies, he'd have to be able to lie. And the scripture says God cannot lie. Mm. And so to, to vitiate his own prophecies, he would have to be able to change his own nature and be able to uh, say, I was dishonest in what I said before. Moses had one covenant. God gave us a second covenant with Jesus. That changed the rules. No, did not. Two minutes. No, did not change the rules. You're not understanding the relationship of the covenant of grace, which actually begins with Adam and that each one of those covenants are a representation of that covenant of grace. There is a uh, fundamental unity that exists through those, even though that there is a, uh, a difference in how those things are worked out. Uh, the book of Hebrews makes it very plain that the argument you just made is, is not really an accurate argument for the New Testament. It's not an accurate argument. So God could have done something once before, which is send everybody to heaven and just glorified himself by showing himself to everybody. Now he can't do that. Now he has to glorify himself by sending lots of people to Hades. Or God will be consistent. God will be consistent with the promises he has already made. Yes, he does not change. And uh, he has made a revelation as to what he's doing and he's not going to change that. I'm done. <laughs> he said, I'm done. So what happened there? He, he couldn't. He couldn't. Give it in scripture. He, couldn't, he couldn't respond to that. Right. James White said, you're asking a Christian theologian what he thinks about these things. And so I need to answer you faithfully from scripture. So who is Lord in his heart? Christ is Lord in his heart. His word rules and sets the boundaries of every single answer. And it stopped the mouth of the unbeliever. Stopped him cold. He had no other objections. I think this is the, the cross-examination format. It's a little bit forced. Uh, but it does stage to show that what we said about 1 Peter 3.15 and apologetics is about giving a defense. It's about answering objections. It's not going on offense. It's defensive. Okay? Um, he's not trying to, James White is not trying to persuade him of anything. We're going to let the Lord do that. Uh, he's also going to get up and <laughs> cross-examine him. And, uh, and then he'll be trying to persuade because of the debate format. But that's what we're required to do, is not to, not to try to persuade, but to give an answer, a biblically faithful answer. They may not like it. They may, you know, rant and rave and scream and throw down and throw a tantrum. But we need to be faithful. Okay. Debbie, I saw your hand. Well, the difference between this video and the other video is obviously he 
stood on the Bible as the only authority and totally ignored man's autonomous reason. You got it. You got it. That was very well said. He stood on the Bible as his sole authority and ignored man's autonomous reason. Didn't try to, didn't try to make this palatable to David Silverman's rebellious thinking. Didn't try to soften the blows. He just, he just shot straight. That's what we are called to do. Okay. I'm looking at the time. I know there's parents that need to get kids, so we're out of time. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we had tonight, and I pray that it would form a, a decent enough introduction to get to whet the appetite uh, for the folks here to. Uh, to go a little bit deeper in understanding this issue of apologetics and our responsibility that you've, this is not a suggestion, this is not a, um, you know, if we want to, this really has to do with a command of scripture, that we are to give a defense, we are to be prepared and ready, and I just pray that you would use the things we study over the next um, several months to do that for us, at least to give us a start in preparing us to make a defense. Uh, to everyone who has objections or everyone who asks about the hope that's in us, everybody who asks about why we don't work on Sundays or why we do what we do or don't do what we don't do. I just pray, that Lord, that you would give us um, good answers for the people that ask. And I, I do pray that our lives would manifest your, um, your nature, your communicable attributes of Namely, what we're talking about in Luke 6 of love, we pray that that would come across loud and clear and that you would cause unbelievers to ask us questions and for us to be prepared, uh, studied up and ready to give responses. We love you. We thank you for saving us in Christ Jesus. And we ask you to help us to be more and more faithful to him and to his truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.